0: Good morning, morning. if you have your Bibles, you want to turn to Colossians 1, Colossians 1, 15 to 23. You can also uh, put your finger in Luke 19 as well as Philippians 2. Let's uh, ask God to guide our time. Father God, you are God. Three in one. You love us and we love you. Lord, as we look at your inspired and errant word, we ask that you would make it alive for us. That we would know about you, about your son, about your spirit. That we would be worshipers. That we would not be hearers of the word only, but doers as well. Father... Move us by your truths. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen. The year was 1893. It was about 130 years ago. We call it the World's Fair. It was in Chicago. It was before the automobile revolution. Yet 27 million people showed up. Over a six month period of time. In the 600 acres that held the fair, like many world's fairs, it introduced the world to new products. In this particular world's fair, we were introduced to the elevator, the zipper, perhaps many of us have that, juicy fruit gum, brownies, Cracker Jacks, perhaps beer. Now, it had been around for 50 years, but the world was introduced, so Wisconsin played a major part in this particular World's Fair. Then we had the giant Ferris wheel and the voice recorder. Those are some of the new products introduced in 1893. In addition to that, the suffrage movement had a huge bounce because of the 1893 World Fair. The suffrage movement would be the 19th Amendment, long overdue, when women were given the right to vote. You may know the name Bertha Palmer. She actually created an entire building that was managed and run, to our knowledge, by the first all-woman board, certainly on American soil, perhaps, internationally as well. And that gave a boon, a boost to get us to the 19th Amendment where women were given the right to vote. There was another house, another booth. It was by the World Parliament of Religions. And a subgroup of this actually decided kind of naively that they would create a syncretistic world religion, a one world religion. They were new age about 100 years before new age, not understanding at all that many faith systems are mutually exclusive of one another. It actually is impossible to syncretize the faith of many, certainly of Christianity. And yet they made the attempt In response to that, Pastor Dwight Moody, D.L. Moody, decided that what we really needed was an evangelistic thrust in Chicago. And so he went to the circus. And he said, how about renting me out the big tent every Sunday morning? You can have the circus in the evening. At the time, the World's Fair was six days and the Sabbath was left alone. Those were bygone days, aren't they? And so what occurred is he would have about 15,000 people every Sunday come and hear the gospel. And the gospel became so powerful in 1893 in Chicago among these people from all over the world that the circus couldn't find any kind of traction and closed down on Sunday nights. In addition to that, D.L. Moody encouraged other evangelical pastors to go out into the parks of Chicago to preach the good news of Christ. Now, we don't have good, accurate records. We don't know how many people came to Christ, but it was in the thousands. And the question that individuals might ask is this. Did D.L. Moody frontal attack the world parliament of religions? He actually did not he alluded to some false teaching, but what he actually did was preach Christ. He wanted people to know about Christ. And one of his primary texts is the one we will look at today, Colossians 1, 15 to 20, that is all about Christ. It's not only knowing Christ, it's living for Christ, it's worshiping Christ, it's getting your praise on. It means that you and I, We'll be spending time in prayer talking to God in the name of Christ. It means that we will sing our praises to Christ because he is worthy. It means that we will read scriptures about Christ. It means that we will exalt him as a church. It means that we will use our time, our talents, and treasures to advance the kingdom of Christ here on earth. And I've got to ask you, I'm going to ask me, how are we doing? Are we getting our praise on? Are we exalting Christ? Because that's what today's text is all about. I want to pick up, I want to read Colossians 1, 15 to 23. He, Jesus, is the image, the icon of the invisible God. That means he's the exact representation as the book of Hebrews says. He is God, Christ is God. The firstborn, prototokos, over all of creation. Firstborn is not a chronological word, primarily. It doesn't mean that he was the first created being and then we got another bunch of created beings, including us, that's chronology. Prototokos is a preeminent word It means he's over all. That's who Christ is. For by him all things were created. Sometimes we wrongly say the father creates. No, he's the architect. He's the designer. It's Jesus that created all. What did he create? Everything in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. You, I, we were created for Christ. First and foremost, we were created for Christ. We were not first and foremost created for our spouse or our children or our grandchildren or our job or our possessions or our education or our recreation. First and foremost, you and I are created for Christ. And even if things are going wrong in our lives, even if things are going wrong in our relationships, even if things are going wrong financially, we were created to worship Christ. And we can't allow things on earth to take the preeminence of Christ in our lives. We were created by him and for him and for his glory. And he is before all things. Of course he is. He created all things. And in him all things hold together. If Jesus Christ does not hold the universe together, we really will have a big bang. He's holding us together. And he is the head of the body, the church. Sometimes in our polity we say, well the congregation is the head of the church. No, you're number two. The elders are the head of the church. They're elected by the congregation. They're number three. Well, the staff, eh, they're number four. Who's number one? This is Christ's church. This is his church, and he's the head of it. He is the beginning. The firstborn, again, that word prototokos, which doesn't mean order. It means preeminence. He is over even the dead. That in everything he might be preeminent. And we've got to ask ourselves, is he preeminent in our lives? Or have we allowed circumstances to be preeminent? Are we lost in our circumstances, whether things are going well or poorly, and we can't get our circumstances out of our mind, and that's dominating who we are and what we're thinking? But this tells us what we ought to think. It ought to be about Christ. And everything he might be preeminent. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell. That is, there's no part of Jesus that is not God. And through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace. How does he make peace? Here's the Easter story. Here's Good Friday leading to Resurrection Sunday, making peace by the blood of his cross. And then the next phrase refers to every person on earth. And the phrase after that only refers to believers. The next phrase taken as a whole, and you who once were alienated and hostile in mind and doing evil deeds, that is every single person. He is now reconciled. These are those who have believed in Jesus Christ, the Savior. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you, oh my, holy and blameless. Who am I looking at? And above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, that is, perseverance of the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has proclaim, been proclaimed in all creation under heaven, and of which I, Paul, became a minister. Let me set the scene again. Paul is writing to a church, probably founded in AD 51. He's writing in AD 61. You remember when Paul is in Ephesus from AD 51 to 53, Acts 19.10 says that the gospel permeated throughout all of Asia. Paul had this principle. He would go to major cities and then individuals in those major cities would go out into the countryside to the minor cities so that all of Asia heard the name of Christ. And so we have Paul in Ephesus for two years and he has a friend, his friend, his name is Epaphras, who will travel 130 miles from Ephesus to Colossae to found the church of Colossae. We have no evidence that Paul has ever been there, but his buddy, his cellmate, They were imprisoned together for the sake of the gospel. He founded the church. And so Paul has this desire to nurture this church. He's been praying for this church. In the power of God's spirit, he writes an epistle to this church, which we read now one of four prison epistles. Paul is writing while himself a prisoner, either in Ephesus or Rome. He writes Ephesians, Philippians, Colossians, and Philemon, four prison epistles, this is one of them, to the church. And you remember back in chapter one, verses four and five, it's a rather healthy church. But we also know, as we read on, that this is a church that has been infiltrated by false teachers. I've identified two groups that have infiltrated the church. The Gentiles are being impacted by proto-Gnostics and the Jews are being impacted by Judaizers. Those proto-Gnostics, Gnosticism won't really reach its zenith until 100 AD to 300 AD in the Roman Empire. But we use the word proto because it has its initial clause in certain parts, Colossi is one of them, and they teach the incarnation as false. There's two parts of the incarnation, the hypostatic union of Christ. He is fully God and fully man. Because he is God, he is worthy and perfect to pay the penalty of our sin. Because he is man, he can actually take our place on the cross. They deny both parts, right? They believe that Jesus is a created being, an emanation, the first angel, So they deny that he is God, and because they believe that flesh is evil, they deny the fact that he took on human flesh. They deny the incarnation of Christ. And you remember that under Gnosticism, they say you got to work harder, pull yourselves up by your spiritual bootstraps. Work your plan and plan your spiritual work. And then maybe at the end of your life, if you're good enough, if you have all the knowledge of this mystery religion, maybe you will become deity yourself and you will be saved. That's one group. And then you have the Judaizers, so nicknamed in the 20th century. They're well meaning, sincere Jews who won't let go of the Levitical law and the Pentateuch. They ignore the fact that Jesus said in Matthew 5, 17, that he kept the minutia of those 613 Levitical laws. He fulfilled them for us so that we are free from them unless they're repeated again in the New Testament. For the Judaizer, the way to be saved is to have a kosher life, keep a kosher kitchen. Make sure you take your ceremonial badge, your mikvahs. Watch your hands in ceremonial ways nothing to do with hygiene, having everything to do with a right outward appearance, reflecting an inward transformation. But Jesus fulfilled them, and Jesus tells us that salvation is not in the law. In fact, the law was given so that we would know we are lawbreakers. That's what the book of Galatians says. God gave the law, and we would violate the law Therefore we would know that we cannot save ourselves and we would look to a redeemer Jesus Christ. So in response to these two groups that have infiltrated the church, Paul writes Colossians 1:15 to 20. More accurately, he borrows. This is a hymn. This was a hymn sung by the early church. I know what you're thinking. Why don't you sing it, Jeff, thought nobody in the room, right? Well, we don't even know the tune, but we know that under the Spirit of God, he was led to take this hymn that the early church sung, verses 15 to 20, and to incorporate it into Holy Scripture. And how does it begin? It says he is the image of the invisible God. Now you recognize that word, image, icon. We spell it a little different in Greek than we do in English, but we know this word icon. Now, I love art. I don't know anything about it, but I love art, and I love pictures of my Savior or Mary or some of the apostles or some of the events that take place in the New Testament because it visualizes things. And if art is left as art, it is good. We're not iconoclastic, which are those who destroy art, saying that all art is evil. That would not be a biblical position. The problem comes when people take art and they venerate it. They light votive candles before it, they bow before it, they worship it, they pray to it. That is idolatry in every way. What are the first two commandments of the Decalogue of Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5? They say, you shall have no other God beside me. You shall not worship a graven image. We are commanded not to do this. And yet some venerate, worship, pray to, and bow down before art. That's wrong. But art itself, it can lead our hearts joyfully To praise God. But the way that some venerate icons helps us to actually understand the word. Because Jesus is the icon. He is the image. He is the image bearer. He is the exact representation. He is God. And this is high language. This language is not familiar to us. But in the first century this language is unmistakable this is a claim that Jesus is the uncaused cause that he always was always will be there will never be a moment when he is not God he is God the image of God This is the language so Jesus declares in John 14:19 whoever has seen me has seen the Father John 10:30 I and the Father Are one. No wonder He is worthy of praise. He is God. Get your praise on. How are you going to praise God this week, our Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit? Will you, will I, will we spend time in worship? Will we spend time in song? Will we spend time in prayer? Will we spend time in scripture? Will we just talk about Him or will we worship Jesus? I suspect many of you will worship Jesus. Get your praise on. Paul goes on, verse 15. He says he's the firstborn over all creation. Now, if you have ever had a Jehovah Witness in your house, or maybe you came out of Jehovah Witness, or maybe you're still in it and you're wondering about this Jesus, you know that Jehovah Witnesses, as do Gnostics, believe that Jesus is a created being. And this is the verse that is pointed to probably above all else. He is the firstborn over all of creation. In other words, the father created Jesus first and then he created a bunch of others. He's first in line. But that's to misunderstand prototokos. Rarely is this word ever used chronologically. It's instead used preeminently. He is above all, there is no comparison of the creation that was created by Jesus Christ. That's what it means to be the firstborn of the creation. It means he is preeminent over all of creation. There's nothing like him. And yet we sometimes try and substitute, right? We think our recreation is the most important. This says, no, Jesus is. We think our possessions are the most important. This says, no, Jesus is preeminent. We think our houses or our cars or our jobs or our bank accounts or our marriages or our children or our grandchildren or our great-grandchildren, they're more important than Jesus. And this says, no, he is preeminent over all of creation, in order to get our praise on, we have to understand who this Jesus is. He ought to be first in our lives, most important in our lives, preeminent in our lives. That's what prototokos means. You say, are you sure? Well, look at verse 18, same word is used. Not only is he preeminent over creation, what does verse 18 say? He is the firstborn among the dead. Now if this word is to be understood chronologically, is that true? Is Jesus the first person to die and to rise again and come back to earth? Is he the first? <laughs> Not by my reading. I got at least six in front of him, right? You got First Kings 17 the son of the widow Zarephath. Then you have 2 Kings 4, the son of the widow Zarephath, or uh, uh, Shunammite. Then you have that incredible account in 2 Kings 13, where this man of God, Elisha, dies, and his body hits the ground. And when his body hits the ground, the guy next door in the tomb, he pops up and lives again. That's how godly Elisha is. So that's three, right? And then Jesus in Luke 8 raises Jairus's daughter. And then in John 11, you remember Lazarus. Lazarus come forth. And out of the dank, dark, decrepit hole, Lazarus comes forth. He who was dead is now alive. And finally in Luke 7, we have the son of the widow Nain. So if This word means chronology, verse 18, is nonsense because Jesus is not the first who died and came back to earth. So what does it mean? It means Jesus is preeminent over everything that's created, everything that's alive, and in fact, everything that is dead. We are to exalt Jesus. And so again, I gotta ask, Are you, am I, are we truly exalting Jesus? Is he the most important thing in our life? Even if things aren't going well, is Jesus preeminent? Are we focused more on Jesus or our problem? More on Jesus or our heartache? More on Jesus than our trial or tribulation or tempest? Jesus is above all. Get your praise on. Now, I didn't know what Andrew was gonna say when he came up here. He only stomped on two of my three texts. But that's okay. I forgive you, brother. But I wanna read one verse in Luke 19 because he didn't read it. He was in Matthew, but he didn't read this one. Luke 19, verse 40. He, Jesus said, I tell you, if these, the populace, were silent, the very stones would cry out. Let me set the scene. It's that Palm Sunday. Jesus is celebrating Passover. Passover goes back 1400 years, right? It's that time period where Moses is speaking for God and going to Pharaoh who has imprisoned the Jews. And he says to Pharaoh, let my people go. And Pharaoh says, no. And all of these plagues are unleashed. And finally, God says to the Jews, sacrifice an animal Put the blood over the mantle. I'm going to send the angel of death. When he sees the blood, he will leave your family alone. But if anyone does not believe and does not have the blood, the temporary atonement, the angel of death, will take the firstborn. That's the Passover. And the firstborn of all the Egyptian families die. And you remember, Pharaoh sends them out. That's the time period they're celebrating, 1,400 years later. It's a time of great sacrifice one of the governors wanted to know how many people swelled the city of Jerusalem during Passover. You know how he figured it out? You have to have 10 individuals in order to sacrifice an animal. And that year they sacrificed 250,000 lambs. That means that Jerusalem swelled to 2.5 million people. The original wall of Jerusalem held 2,400. Today, much expanded, Jerusalem is a one million person city. During Passover, during the time of Jesus, it swelled to two and a half million people. And Jesus is up above the Mount of Olives. If you've been there, he's at the Scopus. And he's about to descend down the Mount of Olives. At the bottom is the Garden of Gethsemane, just off to the side is the golden gate with which you go through, the western wall, and then the temple mount. And as he heads down the Mount of Olive, then and now, it's a glorified cemetery. And so he makes this statement because the populace is crying out, Hosanna is the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. The religious leaders are angry. They tell Jesus, shut the people up. And Jesus said, I tell you, I tell you, if these were silent, the stones would cry out. And so anywhere in the world, literally, if you go to a Jewish cemetery, you will find little pebbles on top of crypts, on top of stones. It comes out of the Middle East. You can't bring flowers. They'll last like 10 minutes, right? So you take a stone and you put it on the crypt to say, I came, I honored. The stones, those little stones will cry out. Inanimate, lifeless, dumb, dead stones have the good sense to cry out in praise of God if you and I do not. I don't mean to insult you, but I hope you're as dumb as a stone. And some of you are. We are called to worship the creator, the sustainer, the redeemer, to get our praise on because Jesus is worthy of worship. He is preeminent. It doesn't matter what you own. It doesn't matter how well things are going. Good, bad, indifferent, he is worthy of your, my praise. Now I've already mentioned that the text today is a hymn that was incorporated. It's actually one of three hymns that we know about that God had Paul in his 13 letters incorporate in scripture. The second one, Andrew kindly already read for me. Philippians 2, 5 to 11. They sang this one. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in The form of God, that is, he's God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. That is, he submitted himself to the Father, but emptied himself. That actually means not emptying himself of deity or humanity. It means that while he was on earth, he no longer accessed all of his divine attributes And he didn't call the angels to serve him. He lived as a human that he can sympathize with our weaknesses. But he emptied himself by taking the form of a servant. Being born in the likeness of men. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death. Even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name. So that the name of Jesus, every knee will bow, every tongue confess that he is Lord on heaven and earth to the glory of God the Father. That's the second hymn. What's the third one? It's the doxology of Romans eleven thirty six. 36. For from him and through him and to him are all things to him be the glory forever. Isn't it interesting? We have three hymns that God's spirit told Paul to incorporate in the 13 letters and all three are about Jesus. All three are about the exaltation, the worship of Jesus, the fact that Jesus is preeminent. All three. Get your praise on. There's nothing that happens here on earth that should ever mitigate our praise. Nothing. The Father and Son both approve of the exaltation of Jesus. He is worthy. In fact, the text says a day is coming When every knee shall bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. Picture that. Idolaters. Atheists. Agnostics. Politicians who push immoral and unethical laws on us. Christ followers. All of us are going to bow before Jesus Christ and exalt him. You might as well get good at it now because we're going to have to be getting good at it for all of eternity. But it doesn't just say this. It says, have this mind. He did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. He became obedient unto death. To get our praise on also includes our service our worship for God as acts to God's people and to those who are far from God. We are to be like Jesus in every way. Jesus hung with the prostitute, the leper, the shepherd. He hung with the great and the small. He cared for all. He served and spent himself, which is an act of worship and Paul says have this mind among yourself. Why would we get our worship on? There's so many reasons, but let me read again verses 21 to 23. Colossians. It would help if I got the right passage. It says this, and you, Jeff And you who were once alienated and hostile in mind doing evil deeds. That's every one of us. He is now reconciled. If you believe in Jesus as Savior, his death is a payment of your sin, confessed and believed. He is now reconciled in his body of flesh by his death in order to present you holy and blameless and above reproach. Why do we worship him? Because this is not our home. And if we have believed in Jesus... We have an eternity held for us in heaven. Remember verse six of chapter one, five and six. Our salvation is held for us in heaven. And he presents us as holy and blameless and above reproach before him. If indeed you continue in the faith, stable and steadfast, not shifting from the hope of the gospel that you heard, which has been proclaimed in all creation under heaven and of which I, Paul, became a minister. We start with the bad news, and the bad news is we are enemies of the cross, we are enmity with God, we are evil-doers. And yet the text says he reconciles us if by faith we believe in Him. if we know that we are sinners, and we know that we cannot pay the penalty of our own sin, and we accept Jesus paying the penalty of sin, which is death, the wages of sin is death, and we believe in Him then he appeases the righteous wrath of god propitiation he takes our place expiation he pays our sin he atones for us and we are reconciled to god and what is the result verse 22 it says you are holy and blameless and you say ah uh, do you know who i'm sitting next to i know it's hard to imagine But these are actually not descriptive words, they're positional words. Descriptive words, we are unholy and filled with blame. But if we know Christ positionally, the righteousness of Christ has covered us. And positionally, we are now holy, blameless, and look at one more word above reproach. Positionally. Do you know what this means? Satan's got dirt on every one of us. He's got a lot of dirt. We've been immoral. We've been unethical. We've used our our words in ways that have been hurtful and damaging and cruel. We've been greedy. He's got a lot of dirt on us. And when he comes... To declare why we should not go to heaven. Jesus will cite Romans 8.1. There is now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. We are positionally holy, blameless, above reproach. And then he'll cite Romans 8.33. Beautiful. Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God. Who justifies. Why do we get our praise on? Why do we celebrate resurrection week? Holy week? Regardless of the circumstances in our lives. Because if we know Jesus. We have gone from death to life. Positionally we are blameless and holy. And above reproach. And when the enemy of our soul condemns us before God, he will declare there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And who can bring a charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And he justifies through Jesus Christ. I say it again, get your praise on. How are you? How am I? How are we going to praise God this week as we come to Good Friday, which was anything but good? And then Resurrection Sunday, in which our sins were paid, the tomb was empty. And Jesus gloriously, victoriously, forever rose again, offering eternal life. If we would believe and receive him as Savior and Lord. Get your praise on. Let's pray. Father God, uh, a remarkable text, really three that we looked at, that remind us of how worthy your son is of exaltation. Even if life is not going well, or if life is going well, your son is still preeminent. Help us to remember that and help us to worship your Son, your Spirit, and you. You are worthy. In the name of Jesus we pray. Amen.